Welcome to the Ready Eddy Podcast, where we help you discover innovative startups in the outdoor sport industry. Join us as we tell the story of brands who are paving the way for the future of outdoor sports. And here's your host, Josh Salvo. Hey, Ready Eddy Podcast listeners. Do you love skiing, snowboarding, climbing, hiking, camping, surfing, kayaking, or mountain biking? Did you know that there are thousands of new outdoor sports startups launching each year with incredible stories and products that are revolutionizing their sports? At Ready Yeti, we are a community of outdoor sport enthusiasts that love discovering new brands and supporting the ones that make innovative, quality products and that have a drive to give back. At ReadyEddy.com, we give away products every two weeks from your soon-to-be favorite outdoor sports startups. Check out ReadyEddy.com and become a part of our daily growing outdoor sports community and be among the first to discover tomorrow's outdoor sport brands. What is going on, Ready Eddy podcast listeners? Josh Savo here, your host. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with a uh, couple members of the Gobi Gear team, Chez, the founder, and Lindsay, the sales manager. Uh, guys, uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. You're welcome, and good morning. Good morning, yes. Well, good afternoon for us on the East Coast. <laughs> oh, that's right, right. Uh, yeah, so for let's start off with, with Gobi Gear. You guys are doing something pretty unique. For the listener that might not have heard of you, you guys offer um, some pretty interesting products in the outdoor world, um, segmented stuff packs or sacks that keep your gear separated so that when you're out on the trail, you're not rummaging through your pack forever trying to find something that somehow made its way all the way to the bottom <laughs> and um, you guys offer two main products which is the hobo roll and the seg sack um, so can you sort of tell us a little bit about how you guys um, started this and where you came up with the idea absolutely uh, so my husband and I like to backpack and travel a lot and we were preparing for a three-month trip where we were going to go through Asia starting in Nepal and I just was so frustrated and tired of the same old stuff sacks and packing cubes. Um, just my bag was always a mess. And no matter how much I tried to organize it, it just never seemed to be what I wanted. And I was always late getting started on the trail and I could just never find what I needed when I needed it. And, you know, when you're on a trip like that, you, you really want to be enjoying every minute of it because the Himalayan mountains are really spectacular. And so before the trip, I was looking at my stuff sacks thinking, how can I, how can I make these better? I want all my stuff in one place, which is why a stuff sack is nice. Um, but I still want to know exactly where my sweater is compared to my socks or my headlamp and my gloves. So I came up with this idea to just segment it, to divide it. And then I could pull the entire thing out of my backpack but not have to disshovel everything else in the pack with it. And so we made our first prototype for that trip and it ended up working so well. And I just saved so much time and I was so happy. Uh, and my husband who didn't get one because I only had time to make one, um, <laughs> he was uh, not as quick to get going in the morning uh, onto the trail. So that was really you know, a positive response to my, my prototype, um, just seeing the difference between the two of us getting ready every day. And, you know, I'm a girl, so I usually take longer. <laughs> and, uh, so that's, that was how the idea was born. And that was, that was quite a few years ago. And since then we tested it, we perfected it. We had some samples that friends tested and came onto the market in early 2012 with the first product, which was the hobo roll. 
And then since then, we've just been, you know, sort of taking that concept a little further into these seg sacks, which are just really minimalistic versions of the hobo roll. Like the hobo roll is this really cool bag that can become a day bag if you want or a stuff sack. Whereas the seg sack is just this really simple, minimalist, segmented stuff sack. That's really interesting. So, so yeah. are you originally from the, the Oregon area? Uh, no, I'm actually from the East Coast. I'm from New England. Oh, nice. What part of New England? Uh, from Connecticut. Oh, cool. Cool. My neck of the woods. <laughs> um, yeah. So how My husband's from New Hampshire, so he, we know, like, we started out doing a lot of hiking over there in the woods and mountains up in the White Mountains um, in New Hampshire. Of course. That's, so, that's, yeah. That's really cool. So did you go to school out west, or were you, did you sort of just be like, that's sort of the next step? I, I, I love this. I love getting outside and hiking and doing the multi-day trips. And that, is that sort of what got you out in, in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah. yeah so I, I went to school in Pennsylvania, so I didn't go very far west. Um, and then I really wanted to go to grad school. And I thought I always spent all this money to go skiing out west and to go hiking out west. And it's just I thought, why don't I just go live there and I'll try it while I'm in graduate school. So that's I went to UC Davis in Northern California and just absolutely fell in love with the West. And 12 years later, you know, we're still here. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's everyone's story that I talked to in the Pacific Northwest. You're just like, yeah, I came out here in a whim and I haven't left. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty wonderful out here. It's a lot of access to the wilderness and the outdoors and just it's just right here, you know? Yeah, I totally get it. Being in New York, it's a it's a little bit more effort to get up into the mountains. <laughs> Yes, yes, I know how that goes. Cool. So what what did you do before you started Gobi Gear? Um, well, I before I started Gobi Gear, I do sort of what I still do, which is um, a wildlife biologist. So I do field work uh, where we go out into the wilderness and hike around looking for endangered species. And I do that for government contracts, um, private developers, you know, like solar farms, wind farms, uh, pipelines, transmission lines. And I've been doing that for quite a while. And I still do that every spring because I just absolutely love it. And so Gobi Gear fits actually really well because I because I travel so much for work. You know, a lot of these projects, you're in a hotel, sometimes you're camping out in the desert. Um just you know, you're you're out and about all day long, and Gobi Gear really it's a great way for me to test the products we make. So I come up with an idea, and then I go test it during my my spring field season, and then that way when it makes it to the market and customers are receiving a product, they know that we've really tested it in real life. You know, it's not just like we tested it in a lab or something to see if it looks good. So so that's what I used to do. And that is what I still do. Um, I just don't quite do it as much. I used to do it closer to year round. And now I only do that in the spring, which gives me the time to work on Gobi Gear the rest of the year. That's really cool. So how did you come up with the name Gobi Gear? What is the significance behind it? Um, so it's named after the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, because the nomadic people there are some of the most efficient travelers in the world. You know, they, they right. are nomadic, but they still have belongings that they take with them. And they've got to be really efficient to live that kind of lifestyle and to still be living that lifestyle. Uh, so that's sort of our, our name is an ode to them. 
That's really cool. I always love hearing the story behind the name. Like for us, like it, it's it's such a a funny journey. And I feel like, well, for me specifically, like coming up with the name was a really hard aspect <laughs> to starting our business. And um, I always feel like there's like the the founder has like a pers- personal and close connection to that name. Um, so I I always love asking that. Uh, what what would you say? You, you've met you you've touched on this a little bit. Um, but what would you say is the development process you went from when you created your first uh, hobo role to where you are now and developing that product and now the um, SegSac? Wow, that's a great question. Um, so the first thing for me is I make it on a sewing machine. I'm pretty hands-on, uh, so I like to just do it myself. It's a lot easier than trying to explain it over the email or internet or even Skype, um, to your factory. So I just make prototypes on my, on my, um, sewing machine and then send those off. They get produced in a factory setting. And then I test them and I say, Hey, this is what I like. I don't like, and send it back and forth. And the first hobo roll went back and forth for almost a year between me and the factory. Uh, part of that was just because I didn't have the right people working for me. Part of it was I didn't quite know what I was doing. So when I'd get the prototype back, I really wanted to test it for several months. Um, now the, it's a little bit more streamlined where I make a product. I two-day ship it to China because that's where our factory is and that's where all the people who work for us over there are. And I do the faster shipping because then they can turn it around and get it back to me really quickly. And then I, instead of asking for one sample, I ask for five so I can have friends help me test it. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, the whole process just goes a little bit more smoothly, a little bit more quickly. I know what I'm looking for in performance. Um, I know where failure points are. I know where abrasion points are going to be like, you know, we, we're just a little bit more, um, up to speed on everything that we're doing, which helps a lot. And so then once you have working prototypes, usually somewhere in that range, you have to place an order for fabric because our fabric lead times are close to six months, which is really far out. Um, So you have to place the fabric order before you even really know what you're going to build as a final, final product and just kind of hope all the numbers work out. (laughs) And then um, sometime during that six month lead time, you're perfecting the product and honing in on exactly how big it's going to be, exactly the components you're going to use and all that. And then it's about a month in the factory and then another month on a boat before it lands in America. So it's about an eight month lead time from start to finish at best case. Um, uh, did that answer your question? Yeah. yeah well, more so. <laughs> it just goes to show how challenging ma- building a manufacturing business is. Um, I'm sure when you got started in this, you did, you probably did, unless you have previous experience in manufacturing, didn't have any idea how cumbersome and complicated it would be to have something like, a, like the hobo roll, uh, built and shipped <laughs> to, to you in the States. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it's quite an undertaking and you don't realize all the steps that go into it and how long it does take until you start doing it. And one of our goals for 2017 is actually to place three or four factory orders this year and keep them smaller. So I used to do this thing where we would order 30,000 units at once 
And then we'd sit on that inventory for a year and a half or whatever it was. And that's hard on cash flow. That's hard on inventorying. It's just, it's, it's just tough. And then the factory is like, Oh, who are you? It's been a year and a half. So, yeah, yeah. so our goal is to place smaller orders much more frequently and just kind of always keep the pipeline moving, which will also allow us to change out colors, to change little tweaks to the design. If we want to, it'll just allow us to be a more nimble company. And it's, it's hard to get the factories to do that. They want those big orders, but we're, we're working really hard in our relationship with them to make that happen in 2017. That's, that's interesting. So what, how did you pick, go about picking the manufacturers that you guys are currently working with? Like what, what, what was that process like? Um, well, it was a huge headache, but (laughs) (laughs) the first factory I chose, I found on Alibaba because that's a great place to find samples and factories. And I just, I think I emailed 65 of them and picked the top seven that got back to me and then picked the top three that made me the best prototypes and then chose one that had the best pricing in the, in the end. But that factory um, was not able to keep up with our volume as we expanded. So I found another factory based out of Seattle um, and they were great, but then their quality started to slip and they started to sort of give me the runarounds like, well, our workmanship is better than everybody else's and you don't understand dealing with China. This is how it goes. And I said, well, you're not getting my money again because I, I'm not going to accept that from you. And so we found an agent who works out of Boston and they have been incredible and they are I think better than dealing with the factory directly because they can change factories for us if something doesn't work. So a lot of small brands hesitate to go with an agent because they can take up the 10% of the you know markup on the order. But for dealing with all the headaches, I think it's well worth it. And they can get you big discounts. So if anybody who's listening to this is thinking about manufacturing something, um, I really recommend going the agent route as long as you can find a good agent to represent you. They'll take care of you and all, all the problems that always seem to come up. That's uh, that's such good. That's really good advice. I didn't even know that was an aspect when it comes into manufacturing that you could get an agent like that. Um, how, what was the process in um, understanding and, I guess, holding the manufacturing to um, your standards in the sustainability um, realm? Like, how did you go about making sure that um, the one, the manufacturers that you are working with are up to your standards? Um, It's really tough. So one of our biggest things that we said for this, this last order we placed, I think was 45,000 units. uh, And we said absolutely no plastic bags. And a lot of manufacturers, they just, they make a product and they slip it in a plastic bag and then they throw it into the box. And if you do the math, that's 45,000 plastic bags that did not need to happen. Like that's a huge, right? And so we went back and forth on this and finally, I think we're all on the same page. And then they send me the final, you know, bill that I need to put a 50% down payment on. And I've noticed they've charged me six cents for each unit for a plastic bag. And I was like, what? I I said, no plastic bags. Like, I don't, I don't understand why this is now again showing up And it. We went back and forth a lot. And again, my agent, uh, thank God for him, uh, was able to make sure that there were no plastic bags, despite how badly for whatever reason they wanted to do it. So 
it, it's something that uh, if you're committed to and you just stay on top of them and make sure that you're paying attention, I think it's not that hard to do. Uh, but you do need to pay attention. You can't just assume that you can tell them, hey, we want to do all cardboard for our packaging and we want to do no plastic bags and then just assume they're going to do it. You, you have to actually ride it all the way through to the very, very end and make sure that they actually went and did it. So it's hard, but it's not impossible. Yeah. No, I've always wondered whenever I order something like what this, this plastic bag is so unnecessary <laughs> or any, like when, when you, when something shows up in any kind of packaging, you're just like this, there's like so much excess here that like was so unnecessary. Um, and so many people don't even think about when getting into manufacturing. So I think that's such a great point. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what would you say is something unique about you, one of your products or your business that, um, not anyone really knows that isn't so um, public and how does that really differentiate um, you from the other brands in, in your industry? So I would say, I mean, that's a really tough question. It's one that I, I, you know, could probably come up with a different answer next week. But the, <laughs> the, real, the thing that I would say is that I, I hate to be idle. I hate to just not do something. Um, I can't just go home at night and unplug and watch TV. I mean, I like watching TV. Don't get me wrong. I do it when I'm in a hotel room um, <laughs> or on the plane. But it's really hard for me to be idle. So when I have a spare 20 minutes or a spare hour, I want to be creating something or I want to be working on something. And I think that keeps me moving forward despite you know when you have issues. Because when you run a company, there's always problems. There's always issues. We had an issue with one of our factories, um, the one that was based out of Seattle where they, they didn't perform what they were supposed to do. So this is when we ended up changing factories and we ended up delaying production by almost six months during that changeover. And our Kickstarter people, you can ask them, they were pretty disappointed with us. And it was really a frustrating time because we didn't have any product. And so for a gear company to not have much product to sell, that's a really bad place to be in. And so I just try to be as productive as possible and innovate new products, new ideas, new ways to improve our website, um, you know, how we're going to hit the ground running when that product lands in six months. And I just think that fear of being idle uh, has really what gives me the energy to move forward because it, it can be 80, 90 hours a week easily to, to do all the stuff. And there's always more things on your list that you didn't get to. Um, and so being able to always have that stamina to go forward, but also not let it stress you out that that's kind of the other half of it is you have to be able to accept the fact that your to-do list is always going to be longer than you can handle and you're never going to get it all done. And you just have to live with that. So it's, it's, I think I have an unusual combination of the ability to not want to be idle, but also not get stressed out. And that's really kind of what our business is about too, though, is that we, we want to enjoy the outdoors. We want to travel. We want to, whatever we're doing, we want to do it a hundred percent and not be bogged down by not being able to find your, your gear in your bag. Oh yeah. So. I totally get that. I struggle with a to-do list all the time. Last night I was stressing out cause I got like halfway through it and I had plans to hang out with my girlfriend and I'm like, okay, do I cancel and get these things done? Or do I just figure I'm like, you shouldn't cancel. You should actually just do it tomorrow. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it, it won't yeah. kill you. <laughs> that's exactly the attitude it's like that go-getter attitude but also knowing when when it is time to say you know what no more today i'm unplugging and exactly 
it's it's better overall for business, I think, if you remember to unplug and just daydream or go hang out with the girlfriend. You know, like you just you need that time. Um, but it's it's hard to balance those two aspects of a business, I think. Oh, so. I agree. <laughs> I agree completely. It, it for me, it was really hard. I mean, it still is hard, but it was especially hard before I came to like the realization that if I don't have that recharge time, I'm less productive. Um, you know, so like if I if I'm working 15, 16 hour days, and I do that consistently for like three weeks straight, and I don't take any time to get outside or ski or do all the things that I for me recharge me like that time is so much less productive than if I take the, a couple hours, go on a run or hang out with my girlfriend or do whatever it is that I enjoy doing, I'll come back and I'll do my work so much more productive in a, a much more productive fashion. I totally agree. That's that's how we are here too, and I couldn't agree more. I think it's very important. So, to keep it up. <laughs> yeah, trying. That's consistency is key. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so you you mentioned Kickstarter, um, and I know you guys you ran two campaigns, one for the Hobo Roll and then the Seg Sack, and both of them were very successful. I think the Hobo Roll you raised over eighty thousand dollars. Um, and then the seg sack, you raised over 60,000. So what was that like the experience of creating a Kickstarter, running it and then being successful with it? Uh, it's a really awesome experience. I, I really like the crowdfunding model where you have an idea, but you need money. So you make this video and you make this campaign and you put it out there and you basically get market validation, which is really cool. And you get money. Um, it is stressful because if you don't fulfill when you promise or you, you think you had it all dialed in and then you were actually wrong about one component, like we had, when we did the hobo roll, we had it all set up, but then when it came time to do those buckles, which are like aircraft grade uh, anodized aluminum. So they're like super lightweight and super strong. Uh, the factory had like a total meltdown on us. And they're like, oh, they're going to cost $4 a piece. And I was like, excuse me, you know, that's not what we discussed. And they're like, well, we realize we can't make it to your specifications at the price that we quoted. And, and so I had to basically go back to the drawing board and find a totally new factory to source the buckles from and then have them shipped from that factory to the bag factory. But that's like really stressful when people have already given you their money. So it's it's this awesome way to get money, but it's also you have this massive responsibility on your shoulders that everything kind of needs to go perfectly or else people start getting upset. And even though a lot of the pledges, you know, they were $25, $35. It's not like they pledge $500 you still feel this huge responsibility to your, your client base. And so that's, that's kind of, you know, and then the same thing happened with the seg sack where we had problems with the fabric, the fabric that we were given, um, tore and ripped under our testing. And so we had to kind of go back to the drawing board for that. It was just, it was really frustrating, um, to get through that. But in general, I think we figured out there's sort of a formula to doing Kickstarter or Indiegogo or whatever platform you use um, on how to get people excited about the product before your campaign launches and then how to get pledges and how to keep the momentum going throughout the campaign is really important. And I think we've, we've figured out our formula. And so I think for our next products, we'll probably do another crowdfunding campaign because it is a great way to raise those funds. 
Interesting. So I'm curious, what would you say is the 10,000th of view of the, of the formula that you guys can implement going forward with Kickstarter? So make a landing page, get uh, people excited about this new product, maybe one, maybe one teaser photo, um, and then start collecting emails and offer those people a 20% on the first day of the campaign when it launches, you know, like for them only the early bird special, right? That gets you funding very quickly on the first day, which is how all these crowdfunding platforms rank you. So it's not just on how much money you've made, it's how quickly you're making it. And then once you're showing up on that first page, the most popular page, it's easy to stay there. So it's like that momentum in the first 24 hours, you need to get that right out out the door. So anything you can do in advance to get that momentum going is great. And then throughout the campaign, you need to be just keeping in touch with people, reminding them that your campaign is live, maybe offering a mid-campaign incentive, like a stretch goal, if you can do that. And then simultaneously on the back end, you want to have PR going. So you want to have sent samples to any bloggers, editors, uh, websites that are in your target audience. So for us, that was outdoor gear and they hopefully will post a link to your Kickstarter campaign to their fans sometime when the campaign is live. And all of that builds this momentum that helps carry you through. That's, that's a great strategy. So you guys decided to do this all in house. Cause I know a few of the brands we work with, they hire third party, um, web, uh, agencies to sort of manage it for them. And then they take, you know, five to ten percent over on the top like basically whatever the um total funding amount is did you guys consider doing that we did and i think for us it just comes down to that we know our brand the best we really and these this product whatever it is has never been on the market before right so it's hard sometimes to explain it like if you're making a pair of socks that are charcoal infused so they're just better than other socks i feel like that's easy for someone to understand. For us, it was like, oh, it's this segmented stuff sack. It's never existed before, but trust me, you need one. Um, <laughs> it's it's hard for an, an agency to understand that and to present that. So what we did was we outsourced some of the PR through our wonderful team. And then we did a lot of the work ourselves. Um, the email blasts, the stretch goals, the concept, the marketing of the campaign, the copy of the campaign, choosing what photos. We did all of that because that was really important to us. And then just had a graphic designer sort of make it look really pretty, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. So uh, across this entire journey since you got since you've started in 2011 and even before, did you have any mentors that sort of helped guide you? along this journey? Oh, you know, that's a great question. I, I wish I had had better mentors early on. I, I didn't even know what questions to ask. You know, it's like when you're on Google and you're like, I need (laughs) to figure out how to do this thing with Adobe Photoshop or whatever, but I don't even know what this thing is. So I don't know how to type my question. That was sort of how I felt in the first couple of years. Like I, I didn't even know what branding was. I mean, I'm a biologist, right? Like I come from a bio and finance background. I do not come from a marketing or sales background. And one said to me, you should get branded. And I was like, like a cow, like, 
I can't understand. And I started looking up branding and I realized it was this entire really important thing for a business that I had never even heard about. And so in the beginning, I didn't have mentors um, other than my dad who told me that really good businessmen and women, they hire people smarter than they are to do things for them. And I thought that's, that's really good. So I started trying to find people. So then I found someone who was good at branding, right? And I hired them to do my branding and walk me through it and teach me about it. And that was money really well spent. Uh, and so in the beginning, no, I did not have great mentors for this particular business. In the last couple years, that's completely changed. Living here in Oregon, uh, tons of wonderful mentors, people who have just been incredibly influential to our business and are willing to meet me out for a craft beer and give me advice for an hour. It's been really wonderful. And so I think in the last two years, our business has really started to take off because of that. That's interesting. Yeah, I I feel like my journey has been very similar to that. And like you with your dad, my dad gave me the exact same advice <laughs> when I was younger. Um, nice. So that, very, that resonated with me uh, quite a bit. Um, what would you say is the culture that, that exists in uh, Gobi Gear and how do you promote that? So the first culture I try to promote is get it done, but don't be stressed about it and make sure you get outside. So we love the outdoors. Like I said, um, we live here in Bend, which is one of the most incredible places to go outdoors. And that's really the culture behind it is enjoying the outdoors. And so all the people who work for us are outdoor lovers. They just, I, it doesn't matter if they're skiers, mountain bikers, hikers, whatever it is, everyone who works for us has their thing. Uh, some of the people who have done work for us travel maybe six months of the year. Like some of our graphics people, they've been, um, every time I email them, they're like, Oh, we're in the Philippines and we'll get it done tomorrow. And they do, they provide this incredible work, but there they are out in life having fun. And I love that. I don't right. ever think that because somebody is not at their desk in America or in Bend that they're not doing a good job for us. So I just say, as long as the work is done, I don't care where you do it. And if you can be somewhere awesome, having fun or go outside before coming into the office, that's cool with me. And we try to promote that kind of attitude for everybody, even our contractors, just because it's really important. And like you said, recharging uh, I think for all of us, the outdoors is an exercise, is a recharge. And I want everyone who works for us to just be feeling good. No? Oh, yeah. No, no stress here. <laughs> <laughs> or mitigate it as much as possible. Um, yeah, yeah. So you guys, you have a team of, of three full-time uh, that are in Bend. And, the, and then the, the contractors, you, we were speaking offline, the 11 or so people um, work all over. Yes, most of the contractors are in Bend, but we have a few in Vermont, Boston, uh, New Jersey, Colorado, and I think there might be one in Northern California. Oh, but interesting. The, yeah, so they're kind of scattered, and then but the bulk of the team that does the majority of the work is here in Bend. That's cool. It's funny. Every time I do a, a podcast or talk to someone, I feel like New Jersey is mentioned at least once. I'm originally from New Jersey, which is why I bring that up. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We um, since I'm from the East Coast, it makes sense to maintain an East Coast presence. So we have yeah. a little East Coast operations office in New Jersey. Oh, really? Because their state laws are pretty good. Yeah, and then that way, because um, I still spend 
a significant amount of time there with my family. And that way, when I'm on the East Coast, I can still get work done. You know, I have a printer, I have checks from the checkbook, I've got all a bunch of inventory and samples and all the things that you kind of need that might come up randomly when I'm on the East Coast. And so it helps to have someone over there. Um, also being on the East Coast, I love it because when by the time I wake up in the morning, he's already gotten three hours of work done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's it's nice. It's almost like instead of having an eight hour work day as a company, we have an eleven hour work day because mm-hmm. of that. So so we really enjoy the the dual presence on the coast. That's cool. What what part of Jersey are you guys? Do you do you have the office? Um, it's near Rutgers in oh, cool. East Brunswick. Oh, cool. No, yeah. I'm, I'm originally from like twenty, uh, like thirty minutes north of that uh, in Warren. I don't know if you. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so funny. I, I just, I think it's the craziest thing. Like when I lived in Utah or regardless of where I went, I'd always find someone from New Jersey. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty good state. I think it gets um, underrated sometimes, but uh, our employee, he loves it. So, so yeah, great. <laughs> it's weird. We have, to, we have a lot of pride about it. And then everyone else is just like, why it's New Jersey. Like, why would you ever, like everyone listening is probably like, he cares way too much about New Jersey. <laughs> uh, you gotta live it to understand it. I exactly, think, but it's, exactly. it's beautiful. It's a beautiful state. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Without a doubt. So what would you say has been the hardest part about building Gobi gear? Um, probably the cash flow has been the hardest part. Um, I dream of the day when we have an idea for a product and we can just run a test of 10,000 units and see if the market likes it. Right now, um, I have to split all the cash between all the SKUs. So I'm, I feel like I'm never able to produce as many as I would like at one time, which is, again, why we might try to go to four production runs a year or three instead of one huge one. But having the cash is just, it's either this or that. It's never everything. I can't put the money into the inventory and into a sales and marketing budget and into a new website, right? It, it's of course. I'm always having to choose what the greatest need is at this exact moment in time, and that that changes very quickly. This month it could be we're doing the website, and then next month it could be okay. Now all the money's got to go to inventory because we're placing an order, and then the month after it's into graphic design because we need to change a few things like it's it's just a constant battle of where the money goes because we don't have a lot of it and so so we either have cash in the bank or we have inventory in the warehouse but you usually don't have both and um eventually you hit a a turning point a tipping point in that uh, as a brand but we are not quite there yet so that has been our number one challenge in the last five years Oh, yeah, I totally understand that. It's trying to figure out what is the priority and what isn't. Um, I'd love to ask Lindsay um, what her experience has been like working in in the sort of startup world, because I know she's the sales manager. I'd love to hear sort of her perspective on it as well. Um, Well, it's very different for me. I came from corporate world, so I was on the operations side of things, and now I'm completely different side. Um, but it's working with a product that I believe in and that just about everyone who gets a chance to actually see it and uses it, loves it. Um, so, and it's obviously a company that I believe in. So it's been a good experience so far and it's fun to have such a unique product that is such a good and high quality product. So 
as of yet, I'm enjoying this side of it. <laughs> That's awesome. So how did you get connected with, with Gobi Gear? Um, I actually have a few friends that have also made the jump from corporate world to local startups because there are quite a few um, outdoor companies here in Bend. Um, and one of them actually met Ches and helped me get connected with her. It goes to show the value of, of, of networking and getting out there and, and meeting new people. Are you originally from, from Bend? No, I am an Oregonian. I was raised in a suburb of Portland, um, Lake Oswego. But then I was one of those people, like so many, anytime I had time off, I was in the mountains here or out on the lakes. And um, I like hiking mountains in my spare time. So it just seemed practical to eventually move over here. And then I was lucky enough that my family followed me over here. So... That's awesome. I, I'm I've considering been, been since 2005, I believe. Oh, that's awesome. I'm considering making the move to to Portland or the Portland area. I've just got to convince my girlfriend to come with me. <laughs> you would love it. And it's so nice to be so close to beaches and mountains. And there's just so much to do if you're an outdoor person. Oh, I know. I know. And the, the logistics of it with New York, I, it's, it's such a a challenge to do something outside like for skiing for me it's easy because i've been doing it forever but like when it comes to hiking like i i hike mount washington in the spring and getting together enough people and then getting the plans and doing it because it's it's a five and a half hour drive from the city if you have a heavy foot um <laughs> so it's so much more challenging to like get out there and do those things which is one of the reasons why i definitely want to get out there um but it's it's cool to hear the sort of dynamic between the two of you guys um, in in the business with with uh, Gobi Gear that you guys are building. So, Ches, what w- what would you say is the biggest fear uh, that you have, and how do you manage it? Oh, I guess the biggest fear is probably that we'll make a product that we can't market effectively. Um, so I know we make great products. I, I mean, I love our products. Like Lindsay said, pretty much everybody who tries them ends up loving them, but they are a little unusual. And a couple other products that we're coming out with, we have a couple backpacks that we're designing right now, and they're going to be really awesome, but they're going to be, they're hard to explain in one sentence. You know, we're, we've really been working on that, the marketing aspect. And it's, what scares me is that we could have this awesome product and we can't really effectively find a way to explain that to people quickly. And then they end up not buying it because they don't understand what it is and how it can benefit them. So that's just such a big internal challenge that I feel that we, we work on all the time. And I feel like all, all brands work on this. I mean, it's, it's all about marketing and effectively getting your message to the customer, right? Like everybody works on that. Of course. Um, but that's probably, that's my biggest fear is that we'll make this awesome product and it'll just sit there. <laughs> because <laughs> People are like, I don't really know why I want to buy it. And um, we haven't had that problem yet. So that fear is, I think, getting smaller and smaller every year for, for me. But it's, it's still one that just resonates in the back of my mind frequently (laughs) of course of course what would you say of we've talked about a few but what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made since you guys have started oh so wow um well i had one graphic designer years ago where i asked him to design me packaging and i wanted the packaging to be kind of 
unusual in the sense that I wanted it to fit with the brand and the product. And he said, okay, well, it's going to cost this exorbitant amount of money and I'll have the designs to you in one month. And I said, okay, well, I only have five weeks. So one month is, I guess, good enough. And when he was done, it was like this rectangle with some graphics on it, little hang tag. And it was really unexciting. And I said, this isn't really what I wanted. I wanted something like dynamic, like a different shape or a different construction. He goes, oh, well, you have to give me the die line for that. And so here I had paid this guy all this money to just make something that I could have made. And I was really upset. And so I learned not to pay people until they actually deliver what I want. And since then, we've hired a new graphic designer who made us incredible packaging. Um, I don't know if you've gotten to see it yet because we were just swapping all them out, but it's a cardboard tube mm -hmm. that looks like the product in real life. And it can double as like a piggy bank or a place to stash your tea bags or something. And anyway, it's really innovative and it's really cool. So, so that lesson was don't pay people until you actually get what you expected out of them. Um, that was that, and I feel like that you know resonates in other parts of the business as well. Um, trusting a social media guy who bought all of my followers in Pakistan and all those countries where people aren't really using Facebook, they're just phantom accounts. Like they, right. um, he was like, "Oh, I can get you to five thousand followers, no problem." And I was like, "Great, that sounds perfect. Let's do this." And I didn't even think, I didn't even know, and. Six months later, I had all these followers and zero engagement, and I had someone do a crawl of my page, and they were all bought fake accounts out of Pakistan. So that was really bad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that hurts, you know, because then you're you're not even – it's not even that you have zero engagement, but Facebook dings you for that. They yeah. know when they're bought followers, and they, they punish you for that. So that, that was hard to crawl back from. Um, that was years ago, but – yeah, I make sure I don't work with that guy anymore. And let's see, other mistakes. I'd say those are probably our biggest ones, which I guess means life isn't that bad. <laughs> um, yeah, and then factories, manufacturing, just trusting trusting that when a factory says, oh, I can make this bag for, for $7, and then they come back to you after they, you know, you, you're like, all right, perfect, let's do this. And then they run the sample, and they're like, actually, it's going to be $15. And sorry. <laughs> you go, hmm. that's like a doubling of what we talked about. And then you have to go back to the drawing board. So learning not to make promises to customers or retailers until you actually have a firm price and a firm production quality sample in your hand, that's a really good lesson. Um, factories will tell you they can do anything for any price just right. to get your business. Exactly. So you got to really like hone in on it and nail it before then you go making promises to people. And that that's something else that we've learned. That That's a big lesson too. So... Oh yeah, I, I the, yeah. Hearing you go through all of those, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've always wanted to get into the man, a manufacturing business, but more people I talk about, I'm just like, I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs> it sounds like sounds like a crazy headache that I'm just not uh, at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what What advice would you give to someone that wanted to start um, a business in the outdoor sport world? Um, I would say find your mentors early and find your brand early. Like ideas are a dime a dozen. It's execution 
of the idea that really matters. So, I mean, you could come up with a new kind of toilet paper that might sound like the least exciting thing in the world, but if you brand that in the right way and you understand your market base and you get the right mentors to tell you what you need to worry about, think about and consider and recommendations on what to do. I mean, you could be successful selling that new toilet paper. Like it doesn't, it, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but you, you obviously have to have a good product, but you really need to know what you're doing with that product and who you're trying to market to and who you are as a brand and make sure it's consistent across everything you do from your packaging to your envelopes or your boxes that you mail product to people in to your website, to your signature at the bottom of your email. Like everything has to be the same brand experience for whoever is receiving from your company. And if you can get that dialed in early, I think everything else will be much easier. Uh, we did it the other way around. We made the products, we threw up a website, we threw up some social media, we kind of made some packaging, and then later we got branded. And we had to go back and redo everything because the voice wasn't as consistent as we wanted it to be. So my advice is to, to understand what you're making and who you're making it for and do that branding first thing should be the first thing you spend money on if it's not your background. Um, and there are tons of colleges now. Like I know the Bend campus um, that they're building here has an entrepreneurial program for focusing on sport and outdoors, which I think is really fantastic. So maybe even if you're already out of college, just taking some classes, um, which is something that I'm considering doing as well, you know, next fall is to take some classes just to get more experience in areas that I don't have experience. The more you know, the easier it is to do all this. Oh, That's I, my advice. I agree completely. Podcasting was my master's degree in business. <laughs> Listening to podcasts, you know, like I, I had a, I had like an hour, anywhere from forty-five minutes to like an hour and a half commute to work before Ready Eddie. And so like I would just listen to podcasts the entire time. And that's how I got into this digital world and building Ready Eddie. And that's sort of how I came up with the idea. And you can't you can't learn you cannot learn. You'll never stop learning. There's always something more and something new out there that, that someone's doing that's revolutionary that you're like, wow, that's such a great idea. That can really help you with your business and whether you have an actual mentor, like a, a person that you have a, a real relationship with, or there's like a, a Tim Ferriss, uh, someone who you don't know directly, but releases and produces a, a great deal of content related to life and business that you can consume and help you sort of figure out your way, I think is so valuable. I agree. I think the really a differentiator for entrepreneurs is they always keep learning. They don't say, oh, I'm this age, can't teach an old dog new tricks. They're like, no, I want to learn. Like, I'm so curious about what this person's doing over here and how I can apply that to my business or to my lifestyle. And, you know, we, we love learning over here. At least I can speak for myself. And I know my husband, we're just, we're always looking and to say, why ask why look at a product and say, Hey, why hasn't this been done? Is it really impossible? Or is just someone hasn't thought of it yet? Right? Like why? And being able to ask that and always be learning and curious is, is huge to, to grow your business. You can't just, you don't just get to this point and then you've made it right. It's, it's, it's always evolving. 
Yeah, that's great advice. And even it, when you theoretically, or however you define making it, whether it's financial or just where you are in life and you're giving back and you're doing the things that you wanted, you can fall off of that sort of bandwagon and you lose it. You can lose it in a second. Um, so continuing and always progressing is so important because other people are also doing what you're doing. And that's great because you're in a world of just progression. And if you're not learning, you're not, you're, you're falling behind. I think that's such a good point. Um, where would you say, uh, we, we you mentioned a little bit about the fact that you have, uh, packs in the pipeline, but where, where would you say Gobi gear is going in the next year, five years, 10 years? So we'd really like to be focusing on innovative solutions. So we have some backpacks that are coming out that are going to be different from what's on the market. We, we don't want to just make more of what's already out there. Um, so our goal is to create gear that is innovative and helpful to people. And I would love to see our company in the next five years having a more full range of those products. So from backpacking, maybe to camping, um, maybe sleeping bags, maybe apparel, um, we're not quite sure yet. Like I said, we, we can only really introduce a couple products here and there at a time because of cash flow right now. But, um, I want to see Gobi gear being a more full service provider for the outdoors and doing so in an innovative way. And whether it's innovative in the product itself, or maybe just innovative in our packaging, you know, or the way that we ship, but you know, like we don't use boxes, uh, to ship to our customers. We use envelopes. And the reason we use these big recycled envelopes is because they're less voluminous and they take up less space on the cargo trucks. So the UPS, the FedEx, whatever it is. And that saves, that means they can get more units on a truck. So it's saving fuel um, and they don't weigh as much. A box has an intrinsic weight to it that people don't realize and over tens of thousands of units, it adds up. Um, also, because it's not in a box, we don't need to put any bubble wrap or any of those like padded things in there with it to protect the product we just put it in the sleeve and out it goes right so for us that's that's somewhat innovative um i know prana does things like that too you know they're moving away from the plastic bags they're moving into the recycled um envelopes to ship things when they can and it's just that's a way to sort of be different from what is already out there in a way that I feel improves the world around us. We're, we're trying to reduce our footprint right when we can. And so everything that we do needs to have a purpose. It needs to have a benefit it needs to be better than what's already out there. And so I just would love to see Gobi gear following those principles, but expanding upon our product line while staying true to that. I think that's a great mission, and those incremental innovations are key. And, and people always think that you have to come up with like the new Facebook <laughs> or whatever, but there's a lot of little things that you can change that can go a long way. And the you mentioning the types with packaging and shipping, like I, that's a whole realm I didn't even think about. But I think like I I understand and can appreciate the the value that that has and what that can do for you guys as a business. I think that's that's so cool. Yeah. But, thanks. What would you say is the best part about running Gobi Gear? Oh, there's so many good things. Probably that I get to do what I love and I get to go outside and test gear that we make and come up with new ideas. Like I get to buy backpacks and then take them on a hike and say, how would I make this better? 
you know, I, I'm, I'm out there in the desert and I'm seeing abrasion points on my REI pack. And I think, okay, why is this happening? Why does this have to happen? How can we improve on this? Right. Or like, I love this, this tent, but, and then could we make it better? And I just, I love that innovative part of the business where there's, there's no, there's no rule book. There's no roadmap. There's no like, this is what you're doing tomorrow. And this is what you're doing next year. And this is how it's going to be. It's, it's completely open. We can go wherever we want with this. And that's just such a freeing and inspiring feeling that we can just go outside and create gear to make people enjoy the outdoors and, and help them when they're there. And it just, it's such a fun, fun business to run. And so I think that's really my favorite part is the designing and being outside in a way that's just positive for everybody. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Being outside and building a business that helps me get to know more people who also love being outside, just, oh, it's such a good feeling. And hearing how excited you are about it makes me excited. Um, It's, I love knowing that there are other people out there that care so much about the outdoor world and, and the industry and creating products that can help progress whatever activity activity it is that you're, you're doing outside. And I, I think that's great. Um, for anyone that's listening right now, you, you can also head over to readyyeti.com right now because we're going to be doing a giveaway with Gobi Gear. If you're listening to this between February 21st and March 7th, um, head over to readyyeti.com and we're giving away a few items from uh, Gobi Gear. So you can definitely check that out. And uh, Chez and Lindsay, I want to thank you guys for taking the time to to chat with me. It was a blast getting to know you, but how can people get involved with uh, what you're doing and um, follow along with the progression of Gobi Gear? Oh, great question. I would say head over to our website and sign up for our email list. We, we really don't spam our readers. We don't put out tons of emails. We just let them know when there are sales or promotions. And then more importantly, when our new backpack comes out uh, this spring for our crowdfunding campaign, um, they'll be the first to know about it, which means getting some discounts on it and just staying in touch. That's the best way is through our email list, but also on social, Instagram and Facebook, Pinterest, we're on all those platforms. So they can find us there too. That's awesome. And we'll have all the links in the show notes. Uh, so listeners can find it super easy. easy. Um, so Chez and Lindsay, I want to thank you for taking the time. This was a blast getting to getting to know you guys. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Hey, Ready Eddie podcast listeners. If you enjoyed today's episode, then I would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Red Yeti Podcast. I'll catch you next week.